Hello, everyone. We will now start the event. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Yan Wei Ge. I am the president of LSE SU China Development Society. Welcome to the LSE SU China Development Forum 2016. Since its inception in 2009, the China Development Forum has grown significantly to become the largest student-led China-themed forum in the Europe. Now, in its eighth year, the forum strives to bridge the gap between China and the rest of the world and to promote mutual understanding. The theme of this year's event is called Navigating Complexity. We seek to provide answers to complex problems at China, that China is currently facing, including the slowdown of economic growth, environmental pollution, and ethnic conflict, and so on and attempt to project the long-term policy directions. The China Development Forum 2016 is co-hosted together with our society and the LSE Asia Research Center, and uh, collaborated with Confucius Institute for Business London. Uh, 48th group and the 48th group. The forum is supported by our platinum sponsors, uh, Global uh, Group International and ARA Company Limited, Shanghai Branch. And our gold sponsor, Hong Kong ASEAN Economic Cooperation Fund, Fund, Foundation. And also LSE Annual Fund. There are some housekeeping rules in case of emergency, which I will repeat at the beginning of each session as a reminder. The fire exits are located at the sides and at the back of this theater. Upon hearing the alarm in case of an emergency, Please evacuate immediately through your nearest exit and do not use the lift. Our stewards who are in the red jackets have been trained and please do not hesitate to seek help if you need. And uh, there's a, a small change to one of our panels today. Uh, Professor Xu Chenggang, uh, sadly he is ill, so unfortunately he cannot join us today. Uh, therefore, the session institutional reasons for China slowing down will now be replaced by a session on inequality in China, joined by Dr. Kent Dern, Professor Danny Kwa, and Professor Atta Hussein. Uh, all of the scholars are from LSE, and I'm really sorry about this. We have prepared a short video which will give you a brief outline of all the topics will be discussed today.
hope you have I hope you have enjoyed the video. Now we will welcome our first keynote speaker, Mr. Raymond Lee, the director of BBC Chinese. Mr. Lee, please. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I think I feel very honoured to be the very first speaker this morning and today. Uh, I think I'd like to thank uh, the organisers for inviting me, uh, sharing my thoughts uh, with uh, all of you here. Um, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, as we all know, that uh, actually, uh, Chinese New Year or more precisely, the year of monkey, is only nine days away from us. Um, according to uh, the Chinese uh, zodiac, uh, if you were born in the year of monkey, you would be wise, intelligent, confident, charismatic, loyal, and a natural leader. I'm sure there will be uh, quite uh, you know, uh, some uh, monkeys in the audience, and, uh, if I'm, I'm allowed to say that. Um, but of course, uh, whether you are monkeys or not, I'd like to wish you all a very happy and healthy year in the year of monkey. But meanwhile, I think uh, uh, in the year of monkey, and I think uh, obviously, um, as far as the China is concerned, I would say the year of monkey may prove to be a very challenging year. Um, that's my topic. Um, because China is indeed in facing a number of challenges in the year ahead. So therefore, in the next 20, years, uh, 20 minutes or so, I would like to share with you a number of questions uh, which are on top of my mind. Altogether, there are six of them. So first of all, how to deal with China? Uh, how to deal with the new Taiwan? Um, well, actually, I was in Taiwan uh, two weeks ago. Um, I was hosting a live show, uh, in a way witnessing the dramatic and historic uh, election uh, firsthand. Well, we all know that um, you know, um, Chai Ing-wen has become the first ever female president of Taiwan. Actually, I should congratulate LC because uh, she's one of uh, LC's uh, uh, alumni. Yeah. Um, also, at the same time, of course, uh, the DPP, the pro-independence party led by Tsai Ing-wen, also won the majority of seats in the parliament for the first time. Uh, so far, we know that Tsai Ing-wen has refused to endorse the principle of one China, uh, agreed by Communist Party and KMT in 1992, so-called 92 consensus. And Beijing has repeatedly warned that all the existing official exchanges and communication channels between the two sides could be closed down if Ms. Tsai doesn't change her stand and, and support the 92 consensus. But if that happened, I'm sure you would agree that uh, it could be catastrophic for the cross-trade relations. But meanwhile, in my view, actually, there are some other developments in Taiwan which may cause more concerns to Beijing. First of all, we have seen 
a rise of new parties, new political parties in Taiwan, um, like this one, New Power Party. Actually, this party has now become the third largest party in the parliament in Taiwan after winning five seats, only after DPP and KMT. Generally speaking, these new parties are more, I would say, assertive and non-compromising on their pro-independence views. So I think uh, how to deal with these new parties uh, will be actually a big challenge for Beijing. Secondly, perhaps I would say uh, more uh, worryingly, sorry, is the, the more voice, I would say, more anti-China sentiment among local uh, people, especially younger generation in Taiwan. These people, they are not happy with the current situation in Taiwan, politically or economically, and they are blaming KMT government for uh, countering too much to Beijing and also betraying uh, Taiwanese people. They want to have uh, a strong self-identity of Taiwan. So undoubtedly, I think Beijing would really need to make a hard effort to win their hearts um, before it's getting out of hands. On the following day, actually, and uh, uh, after the election, I was also chairing a live discussion in Taipei uh, involving young people from many China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. I think the main message, uh, the key message coming out of the discussion was that more dialogues uh, are really needed between China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, especially between young people like uh, most audience here. The second question, how to balance between the country, one country, and two systems? I think talking about Hong Kong, um, to, like in Taiwan, I can sense also there's a growing discontent with Beijing as well. Uh, more significantly, some Hong Kong people are beginning to question the real meaning of one country, two systems. I think the key issue uh, they are, you know, I think, asking about is whether one country is more important than two systems, or vice versa, or alternatively. Earlier this month, actually, Mr. Zhang Xiaoming, uh, who is the, um, the, kind of, uh, the top Chinese official in Hong Kong, he made a comment like this. One country, two systems means to respect differences of two systems and also stick to the principle of one country. Well, I think uh, action always uh, speak louder than the words. Um, it's fair to say many Hong Kong people um, actually now are shocked by the mysterious uh, disappearance of some booksellers in Hong Kong and, uh, and Thailand, actually, uh, in recent months. They're also worrying that uh, one day such thing could happen to them as well. In September this year, Hong Kong will be holding is um, election of a legislative council. Um, since it will be the first one, the first public election after the Occupy movement in late 2014, I think it would be a very good indicator showing the impact of the movement on Hong Kong politics and society. I noticed that the latest warning, actually after this uh, keynote speech session, there will be a special session on the uh, one country, two systems. So I'm really looking forward to it and hopefully some insights from the experts as well. The third question um, I'm asking will be how 
normal, yeah, with quotation mark, with Chinese economy. Um, I think Chinese economy growth has become uh, a key driver of global economy and also has also become a major concern for many people around the world. Over the last couple of years, Chinese officials kept reminding us that the lower GDP growth rate in China has become a new normal. Uh, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, just a week ago, China announced that the annual GDP growth rate in 2015 was 6.9%, uh, compared with 7.3% uh, a year ago, making the slowest, slowest growth rate in 25 years. And also, for the first time, actually, it was lower than 7% since 1990. Some analysts also even question that uh, even such figures could be inflated. I think Beijing has set uh, an official growth target of about, uh, about 7% uh, this year. However, since uh, 23 out of uh, 31 provinces and municipal, uh, municipal cities have so far lowered their GDP target this year than 2015. So I think uh, uh, we are confident to expect that uh, China's annual GDP growth rate in the year of monkey will be lower than that of 2015. And some banks, such as Nomura Securities, even predict that it could be as low as 5.8% in 2016. But of course, IMF expects that China's economy will be growing by 6.3% this year and 6% next year. I think it is true that we all agree we can't expect China's economy to keep growing at a double digit or a high single digit every year. But the question is how low uh, it could be or should it be uh, to be still regarded as normal by Chinese government? 6%, 5% or even 4%? According to Li Keqiang, uh, who is the Chinese premier, China will need to achieve an average annual GDP growth rate of 6.5% to meet its uh, five-year five target by 2020. And last week, China's uh, Vice President Li Yuanchao said at the World Economic Forum in Davos that China was confident of maintaining its economic growth at a medium to high speed. However, he didn't specify the range of uh, medium to high speed. Perhaps we shouldn't be too obsessed with China's uh, GDP growth rates. Instead, we should pay more attention on the quality and the cost or price of the economic growth, as well as the benefits it may bring to the ordinary people. We should also be glad to hear that uh, Chinese leaders are still very much committed to the economic reform, which I believe is crucial for the long-term economic development. Again, later today, I know um, there are several sessions uh, discussing about uh, climate change and energy, analyzing the reasons behind China's slowdown, as well as China's economic reform. So I guess we will have some answers uh, from experts to these questions. The fourth question, how stable will China's financial market be? Well, after menacing uh, some about uh, 40 percent crash of the Chinese store market last summer. I thought that it would be uh, more stable this year. However, unfortunately, 
What happened in the first few trading days this year proved me wrong. Although you could argue it was mainly due to the failure of the newly introduced、uh, circuit breaker system, which was of course、uh, suspended soon after, it also highlighted more fundamental problems in China's store market. Yesterday was the last trading day in January. Shanghai Store Index actually closed at 2,737 points, which is 22 percent, 22 percent lower than a month ago. Well, luckily, personally, I've never bought any A shares in China myself. <laughs> so, I think personally, I'm more concerned about the RMB exchange rate, which may affect my personal wealth.、Yeah. <laughs> And、uh, over past year. We know that、uh, Chinese uh, currency, oh sorry,、uh, Chinese currency、uh, RMB has depreciated more than five percent.、Uh, the trend is、uh, still continuing since the beginning of the year. Some market in- investors are worrying about a、uh, possible one-off ten、uh, to fifteen percent devaluation of the yuan. Although actually, there's no sign yet that will happen. Early this week. Uh, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang、uh, promised to the chief of IMF that Chinese government had no intention of promoting its export through depreciation of renminbi. Very assuring.、Uh, he also stressed that、uh, there is no foundation for renminbi to be depreciated、uh, persistently. Having said that, I think the turmoil of the、uh, Chinese store market、uh, plus a、uh, weaker renminbi. Already caused significant capital flight out of China. I do believe that、uh, the volatility of the China's、uh, financial market may continue to haunt us in the coming year. So I think、uh, we all need to be very careful about it.、Um, number five:、um, What's next for anti-corruption campaign in China?、Uh, maybe I need to check on my. Because I, I need to go back to my、uh, slides, well, if that's possible. Yeah, yeah sorry, because I, I think I touched on the wrong button. Yeah, maybe further here. Okay, this one. Yeah, sorry. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, since uh, Xi Jinping launched the unprecedented anti-corruption campaign in late 2012. More than 100,000 people have been uh, indicted uh, uh, for uh, corruption, mostly politicians and officials, including hundreds of、uh, high-ranking officials. As a result of it,、uh, Xi Jinping's、uh, public popularity in China is at all-time high、um, among older people, certainly much higher than that of his two predecessors,、uh, like Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao. I know some people in China even start comparing Xi with Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong.、Uh, believe or not. However, I think more than three years later, the anti-corruption campaign is still continuing. So the inevitable question will be: How long and how far will Xi's、uh, anti-corruption campaign continue? Should there be any other more effective ways to deal with the anti-corruption、uh, to deal with the corruption? Uh, rather than the political campaigns, for instance, setting up a more transparent political system or governance system, 
opening up media to be the check and balance, etc. Although we may not be able to see any more big tigers like this war and, uh, in the coming year, however, I think uh, we could still be amazed by the efficiency and unpredictability, uh, unpredictability of the party's disciplinary investigators these days. Do you recognize him? This guy actually is called Wang Baoan. Literal translation is like a secure Wang, yeah? <laughs> However, he's not secure any, any, anymore, yeah? Uh, he's uh, the former Minister of National Bureau of Statistics. Uh, if you remember, actually, a few days ago, um, he was uh, chairing a media briefing uh, in front of hundreds of uh, journalists. However, two hours later, only two hours, he was taken away by the investigators and, uh, uh, for you know, uh, corruption. Ironically, I remember on the day, for some media in China, actually the news of him being investigated came out even quicker than the news of him giving the media briefing on the day. <laughs> so ironic. Yeah. Um, he was also actually removed from his post a few days later, although we still don't know what he has uh, you know, actually done. Yeah. Uh, any secure things he's done? I don't know. Yeah. So I think uh, that's uh, uh, some questions you know, we, we need to ask about it. The last question I, uh, I want to share with uh, you know, the audience here is, where would Belt and Road go? Over the last three years, I think she has been to everywhere. Yeah? Uh, she was perhaps uh, <laughs> the most troubled head of state in the world after paying, well, listen to this, 20 foreign visits, spending 138 days overseas in three years, and traveled 400,000 miles, and, uh, or kilometers, I would say, and, uh, during those three years. I think, to a certain extent, it also reflects that uh, China has now become a very active player in global diplomacy. I also think that the recent visit by Xi Jinping to South, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and uh, when two countries uh, are at the odds, uh, also shows that China is more confident to deal with the potential tension and also controversy. No doubt, I think One Belt, One Road is a very ambitious and far-reaching grand strategy from China. If it worked, uh, China would strengthen significantly its position globally. However, what I can say is it wouldn't be easy because its success will largely depend on the very delicate situation of the countries concerned. Perhaps the official launch of EIIB, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, will help a bit. Again, I can't wait to have more updates from experts at the sessions on these issues later this afternoon. I think before I finish, I would also like to say a few words about prospects of Sino-British cooperation. When Chinese President Xi was visiting this country last October, both sides signed more than 40 billion pounds of investment and cooperation agreements, including 6 billion pounds Chinese investment in the Hinkley Point nuclear plant project, which is on the left. 
Um, also, actually on the right, um, I would also like to mention investors from both countries will also be launching a special fund to support film producers in this country to tap on the lucrative and fast-growing film market in China, which recorded 44 billion renminbi in box office revenue last year, and again, a massive increase of 48% than the previous year. So I look forward to more good news about Sino-British cooperation in the year of monkey. Thank you very much for your patience, and Happy New Year to you all. Thank you, Mr. Lee, for your speech. Now let's welcome Mr. David Snell, PwC London Clients and Markets Partner. Ms. Snell, please. Bueno, Niha, Nushimen, Shenshengmen, Nimen Hao. And I'm afraid that's all I can do, so uh, uh, thank you for bearing with me. I've been practicing that for at least two weeks. So, uh, um, well, firstly, on behalf of PwC, uh, I'd like to, to welcome you all to this uh, fantastic forum. Uh, and I know today you're going to listen to some really esteemed speakers on their specialist subjects, and I'm too very much looking forward to hearing uh, what they have to say. Um, what I wanted to do was just to give you some of my experiences uh, working in uh, China uh, as a businessman working with uh, Chinese companies. Uh, and I wanted to go back to when I, firstly, when I started with PricewaterhouseCoopers 30 years ago. Uh, and in fact, I joined the firm from uh, a small university, which you may have heard of, called uh, King's College London. Uh, so uh, um, I'm sure you all uh, know them well and uh, respect them and love them. So uh, it's good to be back here, actually. Uh, last time I was here, I think we were, we were up to no good back in 1985. Um, so I think doing business back in 1985 in China was significantly more challenging than it is today. And I remember when I joined the firm, uh, communication with the rest of the world was, was really difficult. We had no email, something you all take, we all take for granted. Uh, no fax machines, no social media, uh, and if you wanted to, uh, to talk to China, um, you either had the telephone, uh, or if you were really sophisticated, you had something called a telex machine, which I hope none of you have ever had the pleasure of having to work. Trust me, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fantastic. Um, but since that day, I think, uh, or that time, reform and uh, opening up policy uh, has moved on a lot. It was still very much in its infancy uh, back in, 19, in the 1980s. Uh, and the really great news is 70% of the world's population uh, lifted out of poverty between 1985 and 2010 were all Chinese. So I think we can all see uh, the benefit that, uh, that this uh, policy has had on, uh, on Chinese and Chinese people. Uh, we've seen cur currency and foreign investment restrictions uh, removed uh, and lightened. And, and travel too. Uh, you know, back in 1996, I think there were around 9 million air passengers uh, in and around China. Today, uh, it's 353 million air passengers, uh, an incredible increase. We've seen GDP increase 75 times since that time. 
But actually, in population, no doubt, as a consequence of some of the things you're going to hear about later, has only increased by 40%. And some of these numbers, other numbers are staggering, 172-fold increase in exports uh, and a 99-fold increase uh, in imports. Uh, a truly staggering achievement in what is a relatively short period of time. And I wanted to put, uh, whether you can see this or not, this, uh, this particular one is uh, sort of a, looking at uh, Shanghai, where I was just over Christmas um, in 1980, and how the Bund has changed uh, since then to 2012. And it continues to move on. It's changed a bit more since then, I can tell you. Uh, and the other picture is a picture of um, Beijing. Uh, I was also in Beijing, and I, I wouldn't really want to be riding a, a bicycle across some of those roads I saw uh, whilst we were there. Uh, it has moved on a lot. And you may think that um, 30 years is a long time, so um, that's probably understandable that things have moved on. But I was, uh, in 2010, I was working in uh, a city in northern China, Jinzhou, and uh, the first time I went, um, we traveled across quite a lot of the agricultural land. Most of that land was being worked by hand uh, and, by, uh, and by animals. Uh, most of the trains were steam trains. Uh, we went back in 2012, uh, and uh, the, the working of the land had become very much more mechanized. There was a new airport uh, and massive changes to the infrastructure in two years. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, for me, that really sort of reinforced this, the pace of change that is going on in China. And this forum, therefore, ap aptly called, really, entitled Navigating Complexity. So doing business in a fast-changing world is not easy. Uh, it's complicated. Uh, it is not straightforward at all. And if you're there working, you have to be agile, and you have to be able to adapt to changing situations very quickly. Uh, and I'll just go back a couple. There we go. Um, now, um, I think, for me anyway, what I see in terms of China, I think it has many advantages over some of our Western economies. And that's partly because I think governmental and political systems can take a, a longer-term view uh, than perhaps uh, some of the Western economies. And if you look at the cycle here in the UK, you know, it's probably five years at best, and then you're looking at a new government. And what this slide is just putting up is just one small extract uh, from the five-year plan uh, and this is the, the, uh, the economy aspects of it. Um, you can see the, you know, the importance of renminbi markets, and I'm really pleased that London, hopefully, will have a major part to play in uh, those markets going forward. Cyber economy. You know, I mentioned about the difficulties in communication back in the 1980s. Well, the importance of the Internet is only ever going to increase, uh, and I think there are some good measures that uh, the government have outlined in terms of their plans improving internet communication, speed of internet, etc. And then finally, uh, in number six, I just wanted to highlight the international economy. And I think the need for, for new global businesses coming out of China, so Chinese local businesses becoming international, uh, and businesses that can innovate, uh, and perhaps businesses that can move away from some of the old heavy industries into new technologies. And I myself have seen that uh, happening in uh, what has been a relatively short period of time. That, of course, means there are many cross-border opportunities. Uh, and it's great that those cross-border opportunities uh, are good for the UK. Um, UK is now the second largest EU investor in China, as well as China's largest trading partner here. The recent visit by the Chinese President Xi Jinping has seen nearly £40 billion pounds worth of trade and investment uh, deals, 
uh, and they spanned a really wide range of sectors. And I think Chinese businesses are seeking opportunities overseas perhaps to substitute for slowing domestic growth, which again, I think can only be a good thing for international trade. And London, because I think very much when I talk to Chinese businesses, thinking about particularly Europe, their first place to think about is often London for many, many different reasons, um, which puts us in a great position. So you heard about the One Belt, One Road. I think London's rapidly uh, becoming a base from which to realize uh, that so-called One Belt, One Road policy. So now it's a great time to be considering how China and the UK can work together. But I wanted to finish with uh, just outlining uh, some challenges, which is probably not that easy to read, but hopefully you can get the general sense of things. This, was, uh, this is an extract from the American Chamber of Commerce and their latest business survey. And I think you heard about the anti-corruption policy. I think it's very interesting to see, if you look back into 2011, corruption featuring heavily in 2012, 2013, but no longer on the list of worries and challenges of doing business in China. So I think that is a good example of how governmental policies can quickly actually impact on uh, how business is conducted in China. There are negatives to that. Uh, working in Beijing recently, I think it's inevitably had an effect on people's fear of doing business, to be seen in meetings publicly. So whilst it's a good thing, I think there are consequences of these things which need to be borne in mind. I think underlining my uh, point around uh, old heavy industries, there's no question that labor costs in China are increasing, and there's no question that there are other countries that are now competing against China. So for me, underlying the need to move away from old heavy industries. I think I'd add a couple of other things that aren't on there in terms of my experiences of working in China. I said that communication has improved a lot, and it's a lot easier than it was 30 years ago, but... Uh, Language is still a barrier, as you've heard my poor attempts at Chinese. I think there are more people uh, in, uh, in, in English-speaking uh, countries that need to speak Mandarin, and I would welcome that. And I think there's an importance, uh, which is possibly quite often not given enough attention, around cultural differences. My first trip to China was in 2006, and I think it took me a long time to really understand how different we were as, uh, as people and cultures and how that impacted on uh, the way we conduct business and the way we deal with each other in meetings. So that is uh, really an important factor to consider when doing business. So to finish, um, you know, you heard a lot just now. I think perhaps from my perspective, the golden age of business uh, in China is perhaps drawing to a close. We heard about entering a new normal. I like to see this as the dawning of a new age uh, and a new era uh, where we see uh, longer and more stable platforms from which to build business uh, and global businesses and global businesses uh, on the global stage that are actually Chinese businesses. So thank you and I hope you enjoy the rest of the forum. Thank you. Thank you Mr. Snell for your speech. So now we will proceed to our parallel discussions if you choose the uh, parallel discussion on one country, two system, please be back at this theater in 10 minutes. If you choose the climate change and energy, please proceed to the Wolfson Theater, which is next door. If you have any question, please do not hesitate to ask one of our volunteers. Thank you.